This is episode number 18, Don't Take a Day for Granted, with Janet Jolly. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohin, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of adoptees and foster youth who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to make a quick announcement and invite all of our listeners to our upcoming event in Austin, Texas called Hear Me Now. Now, you may be wondering, is it geared only towards adoptees or foster youth? And the answer is no. It is for anyone who is working on him or herself and is looking for tools or techniques to improve their current way of living. So come join us on June 23rd in Austin, Texas for a day of networking with hundreds of other people who are going through a similar journey, workshops, and insightful speakers, all of whom you can see on our website. Now, let's get back to our guest. Today's guest is special. She's an accomplished television producer and a voice for other adoptees, mostly women, especially those going through infertility. She is someone whose work has been featured on some of the biggest platforms, including ABC, True TV, NBC, along with many others. If you think you have a story that needs to be heard, I highly recommend you check out some of her work on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Real Traveler. Without further ado, please welcome Janet Jolly. Thank you so much for taking the time to um, share your story with us and your experience. And what I figured what we could do is I know your story, I guess you could say relatively well based on what you had shared on your website. But for those who don't know much about it, I want you to share a little bit about your past, your adoption and how you got to where you are today. <laughs> yeah, yes. So I was adopted um, as a baby. Um, I was in foster care for a short while, um, and, which I didn't know about until I had met my birth mom that I was ever kind of in the foster care system. And so what's interesting to me is I felt like that really kind of once I learned that kind of put a closure um, of a chapter of my life. Um, but I was adopted, was born in Santa Monica, California, and adopted to a great family in Orange County. And I lived a fantastic life, you know, on the beach and, and and surfing and camping and and all of the great things that come with living in in Orange County, California. And but for me, I never felt like I fit in. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't look like any of my cousins. Um, I have two other brothers that are adopted and we don't look like each other. And it was always really hard for me because I would see my friends and my cousins, you know, look like each other and have the same nose and the same mannerisms. And, and I just, I just couldn't process that. It was really hard for me. And especially as I got to become a teenager of, um, finding who I am, and why don't I fit in? And why don't I even have the same hobbies? And, you know, that was, it sounds so petty when I think back at it, but mm-hmm. it's 
it's your own journey and it's your own struggle. I think that you face, um, you know, and I, and I have a good relationship with my mother. Now it is better as we're adults, but as a growing up, her and I could have not been more opposite on every level possible. <laughs> and so because of that, it created a lot of tension in the home. Um, you know, for me, it was that frustration of why don't, why doesn't my mom look like me? Why doesn't my mom, you know, and I have one thing in common. We have absolutely zero things in common, even as an adult. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's like, where, where does that come from? Cause I would see all my girlfriends be so close with their moms and love to shop and love to go do these things together. And my mother and I just never had had that. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big struggle for me, um, being adopted. And so my parents always told my brothers and I, we were always, uh, we were adopted and we were chosen. And I kind of, kind of knew what that meant growing up, but I didn't. I just knew that that meant I was different. Mm. And I think that putting that in me, and I'm glad I always was told I was adopted, but putting that, that mindset in me that I was different probably created some, um, struggles now that I'm an adult, you know, and I think back at it, it created some struggles for me. And so I would go around school and if somebody didn't get along with their parents, I'd be like, well, my parents picked me, so I'm extra special. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I remember growing up, my friends go, what, whatever, you know, and it causing some, you know, arguments with that. But now that I'm an adult, I think back at it and I'm like, well, that was so silly (laughs) that I did those things. I want to go back briefly. You had mentioned the fact that how you didn't know when you were put within the different foster families. It Was that kind of like, what was that process like where you just dropped off at a family and then you were kind of thinking, well, you know, they're probably just like house sitting me or how I'm trying to understand that more from your perspective. Yeah. So I, um, when I was adopted, my parents were only given um, about a page and a half of information about my birth parents. And my mom and dad shared that with me when I, I want to say when I was a teenager, so maybe like 13, 14 years old. And so that's all the information I had ever had or known, no pictures, nothing of my birth parents. And so they themselves never even told me I was in the foster care system. Mm. Um, so I met my birth mom when I was 21, um, which on a talk show, which I can kind of go into that. And so through the reunification of my birth mom and I, she told me she never held me, never, um, kissed me, nothing. You know, I was just whisked away with the social workers and then processed and then put into the system. Mm. And so when I was doing the math, uh, looking at my baby book, of the day my parents got me from the day I was born, I was like, wait a minute, there's a big gap here of where did I go? You know, what happened? Um, and so from that large several months, I went, oh, okay. All right. That's, I was put into the foster care system. And to me that helped understand because I, I look at the psychology a lot of babies that are held and not held, you know, compared to orphanages and Mm -hmm. things like that. And so I think I was not loved and held a lot when I was first born. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I've never gone back to really dig and find those families or 
find that social worker. And I had felt after I met my birth mom that that was enough in my closure. Yeah. My closure's there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe when I might one day go back and try and do that math a little bit, but right now it's, it's closed for me. That's good. What was, what was that experience like meeting her, especially on a talk show? I can't imagine it. Um, do you know that being on a talk show it, that already creates enough pressure and here you are with your mom who I, I don't know if you have um, had any interaction with her prior to that or if that was kind of the first time you had seen her in so many years so that that must have been emotional and just maybe even difficult to process I, I don't know how how you felt during that time I'm gonna tell you that was the craziest most prob second most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Um, (laughs) uh, I got the call um, from a location like investigator Halloween day. I was 21 at the time. And they said, you know, your birth mom is looking for you. And this was just when the internet had kind of kicked around and email was around. So I'll be honest, I was looking for her a little bit, mm-hmm. um, wanted to know what she lo- looked like. That was my big thing. I just wanted to know what she looks like. And so when I got that phone call and they said, okay, well, in, in two weeks, we'll, you know, take you to Hollywood and you're going to be reunited. She doesn't know she's going to meet you. I said, heck yes. I said, let's do it. <laughs> you know, I, I, without a doubt, didn't question it. But then I went, oh, crap, I got to tell my parents this. (laughs) (laughs) And I just was like, this is not going to be easy. And um, deal with, I guess, leading up to it, the the mess that now I've kind of stirred up in my family. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was not easy. Um, My parents, I told them, and they kind of accepted it, but then they didn't speak to me until the taping. So that was really tough. And then I go to Hollywood, and it was a show called Dream Makers with Richard Simmons. Mm. And I was backstage, and I just had all these knots and emotions and uh, preconceived ideas of what she looked like and um, what it's going to be like. And it's going to be this amazing reunion, and she's going to love me like her daughter, and and I'm going to be accepted, if that makes sense. You know, like mm-hmm. I was saying, I have an absolutely amazing family. But um, mom and I, we, we, we have our moments together still. <laughs> so I, I was looking for that um, acceptance that I think some of us adoptees face. And so I meet her and then it, and we do the talk show. It was crazy. And my big surprise was I had a half brother and sister. Um, not from the same father though, from a different father. And I was just kind of like, what did I do? (sighs) I, did I make a mistake? Did I do this right? Is this going to be okay? So we do the show. And then afterwards they gave us a day and a half to kind of spend time at the hotel and, and get to know each other. And, um, I learned a lot, which was helpful. You know, she was a teenage mom and that's a lot to process. I think when you're that young, mm-hmm. but it was not what I expected at all. Wow. And there was not this, um, this love. She was so grateful to have met me. Um, and is what I can kind of remember. Cause it was still kind of a blur. 
um, you know, she had told her kids, you know, you have this sister and she's going to be part of the family and she's going to be there with at Christmases and holidays. And so I felt this pressure to these poor children that I'm not your sister, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we weren't raised together. Um, you know, let's take this easy and let's take this slow. And they didn't want that. They wanted an immediate daughter and sister in their life. Yeah. Immediate and I, merge. Yeah, and I wasn't ready to um, jump into that quite yet. And so we tried for a long time of um, having a relationship and a mother-daughter relationship. Um, But she's just on a different wavelength. Um, She's had a pretty um, hard life, Mm -hmm. very hard life. Um, Unfortunately, I can't really say too much about it, but um, it's – unfortunately put her in a position that she's not really able to be there, if that makes sense. Yep. And so um, it finally, unfortunately, got to a point where I had to cut off all communications. And that was um, about five or six years after we had met. Um, And that's been about 12 years since we have talked. Yeah. Which, uh, but that's always, I was pretty harsh to her when I finally had to cut off communication with her. And so finally about a year ago, I said, you know, I need to make that right. You know, I'm an adult now. I'm, you know, older. I can handle the the relationship. So I found her on Facebook and uh, reached out to her. And we started uh, opening up communication through email on Facebook. Um, And unfortunately, it's not healthy still. Mm-hmm. So, um, I haven't quite figured out and I'm open to any advice for any, from anybody <laughs> of how to handle that situation. Um, it's, it's, a but hard... I've really, my story. Yeah. I was going to say, it's a hard thing to do. You know, I, I can somewhat relate, um, in two instances. First is that, so my mom, unfortunately she has passed, but she has, um, she, you know, it was one of those where. She was there for me, but she wasn't there. And primarily because she she drank a lot, actually, like her entire life. So every day I, I still have this memory of coming back home and she would say I would change. You know, I'll change tomorrow. But, but you know, that tomorrow turned into a week, a month, and years after that. So I get it how it's it's hard to maintain that relationship, especially after you're trying to change. You know, you're trying to be the best version of yourself and the other person is... Um, I guess you could say fall, falling off the wagon and going a different route. So that that was the first thing. And then the second one is regarding contact. So when I came to United States, I was 12 years old and I didn't speak English. So my, my adoptive family and I would communicate it through a paper dictionary for like at least one to two years entirely like there was there was just no other way to do it that's crazy yeah. wow <laughs> there there was no other way to do it it was that and google translate um so we did that and what happened was i used to keep in touch with my sister um and then one day my adoptive parents came up to me and by the way they're phenomenal family just like yours they came up to me and they said hey you know we need to look at other ways for you to stay in touch with them because what I would do is I would just pick up the landline and call to Russia, which I'm sure as you can imagine. Yes, it, it's I love the, that phone call. <laughs> exactly. Um, it turned out to be a little bit more expensive than I thought. So 
what I thought they meant was, you know, stop blowing up the bill. So I stopped mm. calling for six years. Wow. Six years, just drop communication, all because I misunderstood what they meant. You know, they were saying, let's try Skype, let's try these other things. And I just thought, I just thought, okay, you have caught, you're almost like a burden to us, you know, by having collected hundreds of dollars in this phone bill and that you can just stop it. So that I completely misunderstood it and for six years did not keep just completely cut off communication. Wow. Yeah, so that it, so it was a difficult so when I finally uh reconnected with my sister and my cousins and everyone else there, it it was very difficult. It it was difficult because it's it seemed like you had missed so much, but yet you still knew them to the point of who they were that it felt like in a way that nothing happened. Mhm. But I I know that there was so much that was still missing, so so that that was that was an interesting journey um, of its own. But I think at the end of the day, you know, when you were saying advice, it, it is entirely up to you it, it, because there's so much you'll be able to process of what their relationship is. And what I've learned is that no matter even if you get a chance to share it with others, at the end of the day, other people haven't been in your shoes. So you'll yes. be, as much as they can relate there's still certain parts which I'm sure you're not able to share with others. I'm the same way. Um, I think we all are as humans. We all have our, you know, t secrets or like stronger emotions that we don't want to share. I don't know why, but we just, we just do. So I think with something like yours, it may just time, time may be the answer. Mm-hmm. What, definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. What kind of impact would you say has adoption had on your art and your current like skill set? So I'm a television producer, um, which means a lot of things from, you know, taking a creative concept of my idea or somebody else's idea and executing it for what people watch on TV. Um, and as far as being adopted in related to that, I, uh, well, let me kind of re retract that a little bit. I always keep in mind with what I do, um, my family, and that is my adoptive, adoptive family. I have two of the most amazing brothers. I have several nieces and nephews now, and, um, and we're all very, very close. Mm -hmm. Um, and so with that, Everything I do, I try and always keep in mind, do I make my family proud? Do I make my nieces and nephews proud? Um, I don't have children myself, so I know that the legacy I'm going to leave will be through them. Mm. So I always try and uh, keep that in mind. Now, there are days in television I are harder than others <laughs> when, you're, when, doing, when doing a show, and I may use some words sometimes that are not proud of, but, <laughs> but I, I always keep that in the back of my mind that I want to make my adoptive family always proud of me. Hmm. Um, and so th I hope that kind of answers your question because, um, it also in a way helps spawn more creativity. 
Hmm. Um, I'm very proud to be adopted. So I'm very vocal about it. And I always believe that if I'm on a TV set or I'm traveling around the world, um, somehow each day I try and bring it up in conversation because if that one person I maybe have mentioned it to, it makes a difference in their life. They may think about adopting Hmm. or have been through a similar situation or have adoptive kids of their own and are struggling with their teenage girls, kind of like what I dealt with when I was a teenager and I can kind of offer some advice. And so I try and, um, I say a prayer each morning to remember to stay humble and find a way to inspire somebody else. That's important. Now, so I think it's important. Yeah. You mentioned the fact how, you know, you want to leave a legacy, which I think all of us should strive for. Um, why is it important for you to kind of give what you have, um, to your parents? Is it because of the fact that they gave you a chance and this is kind of like your way of paying it back to them or is there another reason for it? Uh, without a doubt, there is um, a lot of pride I want them to be proud of. My parents um, gave me the most amazing life, um, you know, uh, from love and dance parties and vacations. <laughs> and like I said, I would... I, I can't fathom people who have never been to Disneyland. I'm going, oh my gosh, I've probably been over <laughs> three, 400 times in my lifetime. <laughs> you know, so for me, it's definitely giving, I definitely want to give back to my, my adopted parents. They gave me such a wonderful life. And to circle back to when I met my birth mom, the best thing that came out of that um, is a, the, a better relationship with my adoptive parents. Mm. and um, a, a huge appreciation to them. And so after I met my birth mom, from that moment on, and that's been 19 years, gosh, since I've met her, um, we talk every week, if not two, three times a week on the phone. Mm. And before that, it was maybe like every other week or once a month or things like that. And so our relationship is deeper and the emotional connection I have with my, my adoptive parents is better. That's and so good. for that, I'm very grateful. I'm able to be a lot more open um, with them and understand my emotions, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I hope I leave a legacy. It's kind of, I think, ironic that um, prior to getting in the entertainment industry, I went and did a talk show. And then, you know, <laughs> a year or two later, I happened to fall into it. And so... Um, would I ever recommend anybody to meet their adoptive parents on television? My answer is no. <laughs> and why is that? Just too, too much um, to process or? It's a lot to process. And if you do a television show that doesn't have the um, follow through and care, I think, um, of handling that emotional um, challenge it's and you're just thrown into it like I was it I would not recommend it which is horrible for me to say <laughs> but, but you've got to be very very careful because you don't know what you're walking into and hopefully it will be a beautiful relationship but usually they're not <laughs> mm. what what was that follow-through process like did you guys have I, I don't know any of this did you have um, access to like therapists or like professionals afterwards that met with you and you know 
asked you questions, helped you get to know each other. I mean, you knew each other, but like to know each other after so many years of not being together and kind of smooth that transition more, or、We、was it just entirely up to you two to make it work essentially? So after I did the television show. We were literally thrown into a town car and said, "Okay, go back to the hotel," and that was it. We had no follow-up care. We had no ther- access to therapists, any of that kind of thing. And、um, at the time,、um, I was not old enough to know. I probably should have put myself in therapy.、Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to do it like today, I would. My next phone call afterwards would definitely be to a therapist <laughs> <laughs> to process. But no, we were just thrown into it, and like I said, I was at the time I was 21, and that's a really young age to, I think, meet a complete stranger that is you're told is your mother,、mm-hmm. and then find out you have siblings and、um, process that. That's a, it was a lot at the time.、Um, now that the internet is a little is around and there's more access to resources,、um, I think it would be a little bit easier for somebody. Um, but at the time, there was just email really around, and so there wasn't the accessibility of things that there are now.、Mm-hmm. I want to jump back a little bit to your skill and or your passion and figure out more about that. How how do you fuel your passion? Like what what keeps you going every every day? Well, being a television producer,、um, you drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> that's that's the first part of it. <laughs> But I have the best job in the world. I don't take a day for granted. I、um, am reminded myself that I found my my career, which happens to be my hobby and my passion at a young age,、um, and I get paid to entertain people and paid to travel the world and tell stories about it and meet people around the world and tell stories. And so, to do what I do, it takes、um, it, it takes a lot of determination,、mm-hmm. takes a lot of self motivation.、Um, my industry is a hundred percent of networking,、um, timing, luck.、Um, <laughs> it's、uh, being at the right place at the right time with your ideas or、uh, shows that you're doing. Um, and surrounding yourself with really good people, and、mm. and so I've been very blessed to have、um, a great group of other television producers that we work together and help build each other up.、Um, and so that's、uh, a big thing of what keeps me going and keeps fueling my fire to do what I do.、Um, I think if you don't have good people that keep pushing you, then It's much, too hard to do.、It. Too, yeah, too hard to do it on your own. It's too hard to do it on your own. But、um, being a television producer is so much fun, and it's in. There's just so much life in this world to see, and so I love going. How do I tell that story?、Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do I make that a TV show? Or, oh, I need to tell that story and put that in a commercial.、Um, <laughs> There's just so much beauty, not only in the world but in our own country, that、um, needs to be told, and more positivity out there.、Mm-hmm. Did you? Did you always? Well, I'm, I'm not sure if "always" is the right word, but most of the time, feel comfortable around the camera. 
because, you know, like for me, for example, I'm, I still remember one of the first times I was put in front of a camera and um, had to tell my story. It was very hard. It was very, very hard. And I, I don't know. I don't know why it was so hard because I had the courage to do it. But I think it was more so it seemed to me, it seemed like it was um, in a way kind of like being staged and it wasn't natural. You know, like I wasn't getting mm -hmm. caught just in day-to-day -day life. It was, okay, here you go. You have to sit down. You know, you have to position your hands and feet like this. You have to look here. You can't look anywhere else. So how how was that for you? Was that, was that just natural that came um, when it came to camera time? Or did you have your own struggles along the way? Well, the greatest thing about being a television producer is the fact that I am behind the camera. Okay. Um, I am not in front of the camera uh, unless I'm telling my my adoption story um, too often. Um, occasionally, when I interview uh, celebrities, um, I'm sometimes in front of the camera, um, and it's not easy. I have a lot of respect for mm -hmm. <laughs> you and for people that do do it in front of the camera because um, uh, you got to know what is this, the lighting right on my face? Is this? You exactly. know, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot to think about and keep in mind. Um, but I stay behind the camera as much as I can. <laughs> um, but to fully answer it, when I am in front of the camera, um, I think because I've been doing it for so long, I'm going on my 17th year in the industry. Um, it's uh, just practice. Um you know, that's for me what I do when I tell my story right before I ever do an interview. I practice and practice in front of the mirror. Mm -hmm. um, I record myself on my computer and watch it back. Um, and I always make sure if I'm being interviewed by somebody, um, and this might help you a little bit, that mm -hmm. you have that um, a friendship with them. Mm. That it's more of a friendship and it's a friendship conversation more than just this formal yeah. Barbara Walters interview Question type. for answer type <laughs> of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I try and make it a conversation knowing that um, they still need their sound bites mm -hmm. to, to say, but how can we make it a conversation um, and it feel more natural? So my advice for you, my friend, would be um, whoever you're interviewing – um, if they allow it, um, you know, sit down for a couple minutes beforehand, um, away from the cameras mm -hmm. and get to know them, get to know their families, get to know what they did over the weekend. Um, so that, that like wall that you have, um, you am I going to do a good job is broken. Yes. Exactly. So, so when I interview people, um, Sometimes with celebrities, they don't allow for you for this time. Like they come in, they pop in, you've got five minutes and you got to get it done. Yep. Um, but when I interview people for reality TV shows and stuff, before I ever do that, I, I just have a conversation because I want them to trust me and vice versa. I want to trust them that mm -hmm. they're telling me authentic, true things from their heart. And not scripted. No, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree with you more. And that, that's actually how, when we first started this, that's how I, um, I approached it was that I wanted to get to know people as much as possible, even if, just like you said, if it was five or ten minutes before. Um, some people or most people were very open to that. Others were, you know, I, I have a timeline. This is one of, 
a thousand things I have to do today, so we kind of have to get through it. So, so it, it kind of it all depends, you know, on the situation. But I I do agree with you. I think breaking that barrier prior to starting a conversation makes the conversation that much better. Yes, it does. It definitely does. Did Did you have any obstacles? I'm sure you've had mo- many many obstacles throughout your seventeen years, right? That you have had to overcome. Could you? Take us through one of those that were that was most challenging, and kind of tell us how you went through it. Yeah. So the great thing with what I do, but yet the hardest thing with what I do is um, a television show only lasts for three months, six months. Sometimes you can get on one that goes for several years, um, and it is when you get on a long running show. You know, they're long days. They're you know sixteen. <laughs> 18 hour days, sometimes seven days a week. Um, and there are shows that I've done that have gone like that and no vacations, no breaks. Like you just got to keep pushing yourself and pushing your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard. It's very hard to do and get up at four in the morning and be done at work at midnight. And you just, you got to, uh, keep going and going and going. Um, and the, the to self goes back to self motivation and, mm-hmm. And that's really hard to do. Um, I've done some shows uh, that were not quite the topics I would want to promote out there sometimes. <laughs> and, and, and those are um, probably harder for me internally to be um, to give my best. Mm-hmm. I always try and give 110 percent. And so that was a very hard obstacle to do when you do a show for the money versus the passion mm-hmm. and to give it 110%. So I am, uh, like I said, cautious of what shows I accept now to mm-hmm. make sure they align with my values and my morals. So I can always give it 120%. Um, and it's, it's hard to overcome that, but you, when you make a commitment to a show, you are only as good for your next job as you were as your, your last television show. So you want to make sure you always leave a good impression with your bosses. Mm-hmm. And so that is one thing I try and remember when doing producing a television show to still, no matter how hard it gets, to still give it 110%. Um, I went through a really, uh, difficult health, um, crisis kind of for me. Um, and so, and that was in 2012 and I was very sick. And so in my industry, when you're sick, you don't either, you're not working or you'll never get a call for another job. And so I hit it. Oh, wow. How how sick I was because I was so afraid I would not ever be called for work again. And I didn't Mm -hmm. want anybody to know what was going on. Um, unfortunately I had a long history of endometriosis, which then led into, um, early signs of, of ovarian cancer. Mm. And so I was like, okay, how can I, how can I do this? How can I get through this? Okay. These surgeries. Okay. I'll time these. I would always constantly try and figure out, okay, when's the show going to end? That's when I'll time my surgeries and, and doctor's appointments. And it was not easy. And that's one thing I regret is that I, hit it so much, I think it would have made my life and my recovery process a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And uh, that was a really dark time for me and in a dark time in my industry and the show that I was producing, I was not giving it my 110%. Um, and it showed. And, um, and the show, unfortunately, I don't think um, succeeded as well as it should have with me running running the show. I, I could, it could have been better and I should have done better, but I, I didn't. And so that was, did you, did you ever want to give give up throughout that process? Completely, completely wanted to give up. Um, so I made a decision to have, um, a hysterectomy and I want to kind of talk about that because us mm -hmm. as women, I think adoptive women, when we can't have children or go through infertility, it's really hard. And so I, completely was very angry, very angry at God through the process, angry at my family, angry at friends, friends getting pregnant, um, you know, people getting married. I was just like, what is going on? This is not fair. Um, I, it was a very dark time to not to a point that I thought of, um, ending my life, but it was mm -hmm. pretty dark. It was a very, difficult time that I did not leave the house almost for two and a half months. Wow. It, it was really hard for me to process this and why is it happening? And I try and put it in perspective that yes, it wasn't stage four cancer or worse, or I didn't have to go through all of the treatments that most people with cancer ever did. But it was for me, the thought that I'm adopted and now I can't ever carry my own children and all I've ever had wanted was that blood connection with somebody. Mm -hmm. It devastated me. And it it was a really dark time for me that I was like, okay, I'm either got to quit this industry because I don't have any self-motivation anymore. My creative brain is gone. And I can't even think how to talk to a cameraman about lighting and how I want, how I want what cameras even to use, or I have a choice of, I need to snap out of this and fix it and keep going on with life. And so I chose to fix it and keep going on with life. And for me, that was when I became, I decided to become a voice for other adoptees, mostly women, uh, especially going through infertility, you know, that, we can get through it. Again, it goes back to you overcoming odds. Mm -hmm. We can overcome these odds together if we're vocal about it. And we can get through this life together. I love it. I love it. I love your story love a lot you. because, you know, it 100% speaks to how I've lived my life. I think that no matter, just like you said, no matter how great the odds are, you can always overcome them. Um, you can't do it on your own. I, I will say that I, I've tried for many, many years, especially when I lived in Russia, because, you know, my my resources back then were very limited. And some of the resources which I thought were helpful resources, resources were not primarily due to trust. Um, there just wasn't enough time to develop a strong enough relationship where I could entirely depend on a person at a young age. But. So I, I do think that once you find that courage internally, then you can reach out to others and say, you know, here's my story and allow them to explore theirs. And that that's how I at the end of the day, I think that's how you become stronger as a person, as a community. And and that that's what we're all striving for. Mm hmm. 
I agree. I um, definitely agree. So, okay. So you mentioned the fact that you fit, you were able to fix a lot of this. Do you have any advice? Like, for example, if anyone is going through a similar thing, you like this, as far as the fixing process, can you break down some principles or takeaways that they can, um, refer to as they're going through this recovery and healing? Um, pro advice I would give others, um, you know, trying to recover and heal are listen to yourself, um, embrace the emotions. I put myself through therapy, um, when I got sick and the best advice my therapist gave me was it's okay to feel this. It's okay to cry. Um, you know, in our society, you know, that's seen as a, a weakness. Mm -hmm. And so to hear that from, um, somebody I had respected that it was okay to cry was huge, um, to go, all right, I, I, I'll, let me just cleanse my body of this emotion through tears and, and get through that. Um, you had mentioned, you know, it needing a support group and you can't get through it alone. And that is 100%. Um, find those people you can trust in your life and, let them know, hey, I'm going through a hard time right now. Um, bear with me, mm -hmm. but I need you right now. Sometimes it's a text message. Sometimes it's just a simple, let's you know, grab coffee. And I may not talk about it. I may, but just please, just be, be there, there for, for me. me. And yeah. I think, I think that that makes a, a huge uh, difference when you've got good people in your life you can trust and you learn who that is and who is authentic in your life and be authentic yourself. Um, that's a huge thing. I think that some people when going through their recovery are either in denial or, um, want, don't want to per be perceived as things are as bad or as they are, but that's that person's emotions that mm -hmm. they're going through and it's okay. And that would be my advice. It's okay for what you're feeling and, um, you know, embrace it, find your support group, find your hobby, find your passion, find your things. For me, um, for me, it was my family, my nieces and nephews. I have the coolest nieces and nephews <laughs> in the world. I brag about them to everybody. And so for me, I was like, okay, I'm like, I want to be the best aunt I could possibly be for them. And when I'm there, I'm going to make that quality time happen. And so that's a big thing for me when I'm with friends or family is I make that quality time. I put my, try and put my cell phone away as much as I can <laughs> turn it on silent and make eye contact, you mm -hmm. know, things like that. And so I think for that, for people going through that, if it sometimes for me, I mean, I have hard days, you know, and days I need creativity. Uh, yesterday I was, having a hard day and, and not finding what I needed to write some documents. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go for a drive. And I ended up driving for four and a half hours through the countryside. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm good. Jamming out to some music and, you know, see, see some horses. And, and that's, yeah, my fuel is, is my tank is fuel, full again, you know? And so, um, there's not a, an A, B, C, D or one, two, three list for uh -huh. everybody. This is how you recover. This is how you get, get over it. You know, um, doctors will say it's A, B, C, D, you know, it's not, uh -huh. it's, you've got to find 
your own recovery mm-hmm. and find people in your life that are going to walk through that with you. Um, and that's the big thing who, you know, people like you, people reach out through support groups and online blogs and websites like what you're doing, I think is, is a huge plus for people trying to overcome those, those mm-hmm. odds with adoption or hard times or, um, you know, that struggle of that, that bond and love. I don't know for you, do you ever sometimes feel like there's that still that missing link um, from your child, even though you had a good childhood, there's still that just missing part in your heart. And I still feel it. And I haven't found what it is yet. Um, And I'll admit, I've, I've been on your website many times to listen to other people's stories to know that, okay, I'm not alone. Uh, It's okay. Mm -hmm. It's it's okay. I'm not alone. You bring up a lot of good points. One of them is, uh, you know, therapy and the fact crying, so for me, one of the biggest challenges has been to actually accept that, that it is okay to cry sometimes. So what I've started doing, and I don't know if this is, I don't think there is right or wrong in this case, but about a year to a year and a half ago is that I actually would do that. Just try and, you know, think of a memory that makes you do that. And I, I can't tell you the impact it has had after that. Once you make yourself cry if you if you don't cry a lot afterwards I just feel like a completely new person like I just Mm -hmm. you know I got rid of all of the this dense energy and it's just back to being calm and clean and being able to process your thoughts um it, it, it just made a lot more sense it was everything was just very clear and but before that you know for so many years 20 years at least um, I just always thought that that was kind of a bad thing. You know, you, you were looked down upon when you cry. Mm-hmm. It means that you have a weakness. And when you're, when you're weak in the society and whatever that means, you know, you don't get accepted. People don't talk to you the same way. And then, or like pity, you know, is a big thing. So that, but I, I think that once you do accept it, which another point you bring up is I think, being the best version of yourself at all times. And that is really just being yourself. So who, whatever you are, you know, if if you have a dry, like I have a dry sense of humor and I accept that. That's perfectly fine. If I'm in a conversation with people and they don't understand my sense of humor, that is okay. Because I know that I'll be able to connect with them in other ways. And that's one of the things that I think we struggle so much with in the society is that, you know, even when it comes to jobs, we try to be different people. It's like we have a split personality. We're oneself when we're just amongst us and our core group of friends. But when we're forced to go out and look for jobs and um, put a resume in front of them and say, you know, this is who I am, even though sometimes it's often not who they are, you fall into that false reality and it truly does become part of your life. That's mm-hmm. what you end up transforming into. So that I that's a, I think that's a very valid point that you make and it's important for people to understand that is that at the end of the day just be who you are. Yes. And you'll okay. find you'll find your tribe. Yes. That is very true. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Be who you are and find your tribe. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> 
I like that. Um, regarding mentorship, so we both both of us have talked about having your tribe, your support groups. In in your eyes, what defines a great mentor? A great mentor is somebody who, no matter what, the beautiful, the ugly, the <laughs> hard times, is always there. Um, and I have two groups of mentors that have been there that I cannot tell you never have judged, never once have judged. And I mm. think that makes a great mentor. Always have believed, always pushing you. Knows when to like, you know, all right, we'll ease up this time. But I'll go back to never, almost like a family member, never has judged and is always there for you that you can lean on both professionally and personally. Um, I have two great mentors um, in the professional world that have become personal friends, very close personal friends. Mm -hmm. One of which is a group of producers. There's about... Um, I want to say like eight or nine of us that have worked together on shows and actually we were together for about two or three years on the same tv shows and then um when was it's probably been almost i want to say five or six years since we've all worked together again but three four times a year we get together we text each other you know a couple times a month we'll bounce these ideas off each other you know, some have gotten married with babies and others, you know, have off doing other things. We've been through marriages, divorces, kids, <laughs> TV shows canceling to, you know, selling TV shows together. And um, no matter what, we've always got each other's back. Mm. The, high, the highs and lows. Um, I know I can send them a horrible grammar document <laughs> and they won't judge me over it. <laughs> or things like that. I have another great mentor that um, I think the absolute world of him. He's a very, very successful man in the entertainment industry, has a very successful production company, um, has done very well for himself, um, and has a beautiful family. And we've done several TV shows together. I've worked for him for many, many times. And every time I see him, he's just like, you're the best producer I've ever had. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm struggling. <laughs> what about this? Oh, I don't know. What do you think? And he's like, you've got this. You're the best producer. And, and I don't think ever once um, he's not gone a day not telling me I'm a, a great producer and inspiring me. And I think that's uh, important. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, gosh, here's this very successful, award-winning producer that still believes in me after all these years, <laughs> you know, I think that says something and that makes a great mentor. And um, that's important to me to give back. I think now that I'm at a point in my career where I've, I've done good, I, I would love to keep doing better, but uh -huh. um, I try and find other people that I can give back as much as these people have given me. Um, and so I think what makes a good mentor is you become one yourself. Mm. Wow. Now that I, I like that. I like that a lot. Do you, can you tell us, do you, so first of all, I know that you, um, based on your experience of being adopted, do you have any 
adopted role models that you look up to? You know, that one of my biggest inspirations um, when I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, um, is Stephen Curtis Chapman. He himself is not adopted, but he um, has adopted three beautiful daughters. Um, And he's a very successful Christian music singer um, and started an adoption um, organization that gives adoption grants. And I want to say he, him and his family are the most beautiful souls. And the fact that they use their platform um, in the Christian music industry to bring more awareness to adoption and make more homes, uh, make more families, I should say, make more, provide more families to children, I think is beautiful. And he's somebody that um, I lean on in the in his people that work with him. I've become very close friends of mine. And I cannot tell you how much of the world I think of them. And as I go out there and I am a voice, they help me make sure I'm, you know, using the right language and different things. And um, they started a group um, in Nashville, I think through churches you can kind of connect to that's called Embrace to Connect, which is post-adoption care. Mm-hmm. And it's for families. And I even recommend children that are older that have been adopted at an older age and now have their struggles with their identities or that connection of how to embrace that and how to handle those emotions. And so I went to my first um, weekend sessions with them two years ago and I don't have children and you know, I was had a great childhood. So I'm like, okay, you know what? But Oh my gosh, the fact that they put the, their own money behind this resource and their voice on this to help. I walked out of that session, a whole new woman and how to be a better adoptee and how to understand my own emotions and my, my brother's emotions and things that they uh, go with and they just don't stop there. I think with what they do, you know, it wasn't like, okay, here's the money and let's talk about adoption, go adopt a kid. It is all right. Now us have brought home, you know, older children from China and we're dealing with certain things or we have families and friends that are dealing with certain things. Well, let's start this support group of post adoption care. Like Mm -hmm. who does that? (laughs) <laughs> that to me is just, he puts his money where his mouth is and really helps and inspires other people. And what him and the group over at, at Show Hope do is a really beautiful, a beautiful thing that I recommend. Um, if you can connect with the Embrace to Connect weekend, I think mm-hmm. it's in, usually in the springtime. It's, oh my gosh, it's an amazing weekend that you'll have as an adoptee. I'll definitely have to look into that. We're we're actually putting together an event of our own. We just finalized all the speakers and um, location and everything. It'll be in June June twenty third in Austin, Texas, and that's so that we're hoping to create a similar experience where we'll have people who have been adopted or part of foster care come in, and we'll have about seven different speakers. Some of them I think you've heard. Um, it's people like Jim Bricker. Mm-hmm. So it would be her and um, six others. A couple are local from Austin here, and Anne Heffron. I think she lives in uh, California. 
and then there's another um, therapist, Leslie Johnson. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to like having an event like this. This will be a first of its kind for kind of for us and for doing this. So that's it's good to hear that there are other organizations that are doing stuff like this. I absolutely love that and would uh, you count me in to be be there because I think it is, is so beautiful and it's beautiful and important for us um, older adoptees, mm -hmm. you know, now to uh, lean on each other and talk about it in safe spaces. And so what you're doing is beautiful. Yeah. And thank you for doing that. Absolutely. No, thank, thank you. And, you know, one of the reasons why I actually started doing stuff like this and it is because when I used to go to seminars and conferences, there was always a thing missing. And I think one of those, or one of the, there were things missing. One of the things was the fact that it was a lot harder to connect with me when I'm trying to emotionally invest with someone else, because primarily because of the background. I know that I, I even though I'll be able to express certain things and certain trauma that I went through, that people, um, they just couldn't relate. So that's where I started to really break it down and say, okay, how can I create, you know, how can we create this type of event for people who have been adopted or for people who are in foster care? And that's where it started to click. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> obviously start off with people who have been through it mm -hmm. and, and have, have each other there and share on based on topics that you go through every day, such as finding your voice, you know, going after your dreams, um, dealing through trauma. And that that's what those are some of the topics that people or the speakers will be speaking on. So so that's where it kind of just started to click. And um, yeah, I think it would be great to have you there. And maybe there's even a way that we can, um, you know, partner or do some sort of collaboration. I would absolutely love to you let me know where you need help and I will be there and and help you out. So absolutely. I think it, it's amazing. So, yeah. yeah. I applaud you. It's a lot of work to do something like that. So, <laughs> yes. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's a lot of work, but I think it's just like you said, it's, you know, based on your experience, it's the work that needs to be done. I've for many, many years after I got adopted, I used to ask myself, why me? You know, why is it that I had to go through such an experience and it, it, now it makes perfect sense. It's it's you, and in your case, it's you that had to go through that experience and share it. Because if it's not you, then who else? Mm -hmm. It is, is very true. Um, I cannot um, even try and comprehend or understand what you had gone through. Um, <laughs> and I, I applaud that. And it, I'm fighting back tears right now. So I was in China and, um, uh, I was visiting an orphanage and playing with these babies and they had just a literally a sliver of light that came through their window at the top. So they mm -hmm. can't even like pop their heads up to see the sunshine or see outside and, you know, no shoes, you know, dirty diet. I mean, it was just, a, a, it was an experience you just had to embrace mm -hmm. because it was so emotional. And, I was sitting there playing with this baby with the ball and I went, God, 
why me? Why are these babies? Why are these children here? Why did, why was I born in Santa Monica, California of all places? <laughs> you know, I'm like, how did I get, you know, the lottery of that? This is just, isn't fair. This isn't fair to these babies. It isn't fair to that. And yet I had this and, um, it's a hard thing to process and you know, people say to me, oh, you didn't have this. You weren't locked in a closet. You weren't, you know, why do you talk about it? And I said, no, but I had a beautiful positive story mm-hmm. that hopefully will keep less of those stories happening out there. And, and it's, um, I'm not sure if I'm making a point, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for me when I go, when I go to the orphanages around the, the world and I'm with them, it's, I'm like, gosh, it's, I'm so spoiled shouldn't do this, you know, because there's so many babies out there that need homes. Um, And there's so much that happens behind the scenes. So one of the points that I actually made during my TED talk was that I described what it was like to live in an orphanage. And, you know, I took people to kind of the hardest time that I had there, which um, unfortunately it was like most days. So the way that they taught you discipline or quote, you know, quote unquote, whatever that means, was through um, physical and and mental abuse, and it's very unfortunate for me to look back at it now, but I'm also so glad that I'm able to speak up about this. So you know, to give you an instance, when when you mentioned the fact that they they weren't able to see sunlight, we were able to see sunlight, but our sunlight, our definition of it was slightly different. You know, for me, seeing the sunlight was, yes, it was the sun, but it was also seeing my mom. It was also seeing my my sister. And when you're put in a setting like this, you would think as as a, a visitor or someone who may not know about much about the system is that, you know, you will get your visits. You can go out and see your parents whenever you want. That's not true. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't have a ch- – there's no such thing as, okay – I'm put in the orphanage and I can go see my, my mom anytime I want. That that mm-hmm. doesn't exist. So when I, I, I want to say first week after I went into that system at nine, you know, I ran away. I, I went out, jumped the fence and, and I was gone for, for a couple hours. Um, when, I, when I came back, it was something that I had no clue what happened. And that is punishment. Mm-hmm punishment for seeing mm-hmm. your, your own family. And so, you know, the question I had for you is, how do you feel about visiting these orphanages? Because I was recently contacted by a good friend of mine, and they are, they will be a host family this coming summer for three, three kids from Ukraine, three brothers. And one of the things that they were asking me was that, you know, they want to go into the orphanage and see them, or they want to host them but what they don't want to do is create that sense of false hope. Mm-hmm. Give them that image that, you know, there's life after this. There's a potential for us to be a family. Like, how do you feel? How do you feel when you go into the orphanage? Like, do, do you ever think about the fact that you may create a an attachment with a kid? And then you know that the day's going to come when a plane's going to leave that country and you may not see him or her ever again. Um, that is a very loaded question that I wrestle with. 
every time I, I do a, a, a trip, I just got back from Haiti and uh, faced those same obstacles. And um, mission trips or trips in general, they need they need to happen um, from both parties. Um, I truly believe that is why a lot of us have attachment issues, um, mostly children from from orphanages, um, because of that false hope. Mm-hmm. You know, um, people come in, they love on them for a week, they learn to bond with them, and then they, they learn that, that person's never in their life again, and they they leave them. Um, and that that's a hard question and I wish I had an answer for your friends that are are taking in those children because I applaud them for that because that's mm-hmm. not an easy task and it's a beautiful task um, and hopefully whatever's meant to be will will happen the right way that doesn't cause too much trauma mm-hmm. um, I wish I I wish I had that answer because you need those trips you um, um, from both perspectives, you know, the orphanages need the, the care and the extra hands and the, and the help in them. Um, a lot of people, um, go on them to give back on mission trips or trips in general like that to give back and also, you know, for their own spirituality. Um, and so they learn and grow from that perspective. Um, but it's so hard and I wish I could say like, Stay Here's forever. The adopt one or the other. Yeah. yeah. Adopt, adopt a baby or, you know, it's going to be this way or it's going to be that. But um, it's not, unfortunately. And so children do have a hard time attaching. Um, I think it affects them in the long run. Um, I'm not a therapist. So um, <laughs> don't, don't quote, don't me, quote me as a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's hard. And I'll admit it's hard for me. I mean, there's babies I, I still think about that. I'm like, oh. and, and every time I go on a trip and, and I, I'll be adopting soon. I don't know when quite yet, you know, but every time I go on a trip, I'm like, okay, this is, this is my, and I would probably end up with a house full of about a hundred children <laughs> <laughs> and it would be a party house with a zip line. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's hard. It's so, it's so hard. So I think the best answer is to go into any of those orphanages and like your friends, for uh, example, with a humble heart, Mm -hmm. um, try not to create that false sense of hope, um, and trust, trust that this moment is meant to be and we'll lead you somewhere else. Yeah. That's probably the best advice I could give because that's, it does. I see that a lot. Um, I see that a lot in the children, you know, that they don't and they act out They They have a lot of behavior issues sometimes because they're afraid that you're just going to come in and then then leave them. Yeah. Um, and, the, and that's, you know, and that, think, that's what I said at the end of the day. I think you just like you said, I think you just have to listen to your heart and whatever that says that's what you have to go with because there's there's truly no right or wrong and i was thinking this you know i was trying to break it down well how did i do this or how did, how did it work for me but at the end of the day it, it like there's like you said you need the experience from the one perspective you need to grow you need to understand what that system's like what the kids are going through who they are but then you also need it from the other one um mm-hmm. 
and I also think that, you know, false hope, in my case, I, I guess I was fortunate that our orphanage didn't allow a lot of these um, things or like interactions, I guess you could say, where they would bring in other parents and, you know, they would put together a group of kids and say, okay, which one do you like and that type of thing. But I, I will say this, that in my case, <clears throat> once my adoption process started, so I came here with, um, I think it's 14, 14 other kids. There's supposed to be a couple more, but two of them didn't make it through um, medical exams uh, here in the States. So they, they couldn't come to the States. But when we were adopted, we, you know, everything was staged. From the moment that we knew that there's a potential for family, and when the families did come and visit us, um, you know, we had, we had a news station there. They were recording everything. Uh, they put us in this large uh, ballroom, and they gave us oh. to toys. And, and you know, I was at an age, I was 10 or 11 years old, so I understood what was happening. But yet I knew that I had to act a certain way. And if I didn't act a certain way, then, you know, you get punished right after the families are gone. So that that's where I was trying to see if if you saw it, you know, from similar or different perspective. And that's kind of how I'm trying to give advice is that, yes, you do you, you do need those experiences. But there are so many other things that you just won't learn from like a publication or any news outlet unless you truly are looking beyond what's given and in our cases you know it, it was it was made this like <clears throat> here's this journey of kids being adopted and it, it was a phenomenal story but at the end of the day it's like there were so many things that we had to go through in order to make that story mm -hmm. so that might but but yeah it is what it is i guess and you just you have to listen to your heart and hope for the best. Yeah, you do have to hope for the best. And I like what you said of that you have to dig a little deeper than what you're what you're given. Um, because um, unfortunately, not every orphanage um, is as glamorous as, as the media portrays it, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and not every story is as glamorous as the media portrays it. And um, you just have to find um, your family's truth. Yep. Absolutely. And, and how to, yeah. And how to piece it together. It's a different puzzle than the traditional way, um, <laughs> of our society, but how to piece that puzzle together, the, your family way, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and find it. And why I think they need to, people need to walk their children through it and brothers and sisters. And one thing that's been great for me, um, as I've gotten older is, um, my middle brother and I, uh, we talk a lot about it and, and his wife, you know, and we're very open about um, our adoptions and our, our birth parents. And, um, and that is a huge resource, I think, of getting through it each other. Um, mm -hmm. So if you have siblings, um, don't be afraid to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. F mm -hmm. uh, final thought for today's episode when the odds are completely against you, what are some core 
fundamental principles that you always refer to? Uh, the, when the odds are against me, I absolutely go back to my values, um, you know, which are always, you know, living the fullest um, and getting through each day with a smile. <laughs> um, and if I can't smile, then I go find a reason to. So <laughs> I, I, I go for me, it's long drives or hiking or nature. I found my, found my place. Um, it's getting through, um, each day with, uh, each other, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that definitely, um, helps me. That's a very good question. You are, you make a great television. <laughs> <laughs> you would, you, you definitely would, but you know, it's, uh, when the odds are against you, you just got to do it. Um, we have a kind of a group saying, you know, we got this, we got this, we, we got this. And I just came back from Haiti and they have a saying in this village in Haiti called degage, um, which means make it work. And uh, I said, that's my new saying. That's powerful. I, I said, they just find a way in that village to make it work. And I said, that is what I am applying in my life now. I'm going to always just figure out a way and make it work. Um, and that's, that's how you just got to overcome it, you know? And if you're having a bad day, it's okay to have a bad day. Just don't put it on other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, F find, find you're happy, find what you need to do. Um, Embrace it. Embrace it, get through it, you know, and you just got to move on. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I highly recommend that you check out some of Janet's work on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Real Traveler. Also, if you haven't done so already, check out our upcoming event, Hear Me Now in Austin, Texas, as it will be a great opportunity for you to connect with hundreds of others who are working daily to improve their current lifestyles. For more details, please visit overcomingodds.today forward slash hear me now. Once again, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next week.